Okay, as we uh, turn to God's word again together, let's just bow our hearts, shall we? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you that it is life-giving. And thank you, Father, that it transforms us. And Lord, we need to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And so, Lord, as we study your word this morning, we pray that you would speak to our hearts and our minds. Father, may our hearts just fall more and more in love with you and the things of you. And Father, may our minds be challenged, Lord, not to follow the, the course and the path of this world, but, Lord, to seek you, to go your way. Lord, to look for that narrow way, but, Lord, that way wherein there is great blessing and joy. Father, just open our ears and our eyes now, we pray. Father, bless my words and stir our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We are second session this morning of uh, looking at the minor prophets. The minor prophets are this classification of the last... 12 prophets we find recorded in the Old Testament. Um, they're minor, not in terms of uh, quality, but purely in terms of quantity. And so they've got this label, the minor prophets. Um, so this morning we'll be looking at Jonah, Micah, Nahum, and Habakkuk. Now, I appreciate it's a little bit small from the back there, so I'll kind of point it out with the point here. Um, historically, Jonah, who we're going to be looking at in a short while, is one of the first of the prophets that we find uh, to actually have anything written down. Um, coming along here, though, we have the fall of Samaria, 722 BC. Uh, a little bit further on, we get Jerusalem itself, the first siege by Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, Jehoiakim is the king on the throne at the time. Um, then we have the fall of Jerusalem uh, a few years later in 587 BC, and Zedekiah is the king on the throne, been appointed by Nebuchadnezzar as the, kind of the vassal king under the authority of Babylon at this point. Um, then we get to the period of the exile, which is where Jer- Jeremiah and Daniel uh, and Ezekiel and so on. Um, eventually, the Jews are allowed to return to their land, um, and in uh, 518 BC, that's when the period of the desolations of Jerusalem comes to an end, and the temple itself, the foundations are laid, uh, and it's uh, some years, a few years from there until it's finally built. And then finally, we get down to 445 BC, and we get to the time of Nehemiah, and this is when the decree is given for the rebuilding of the city itself uh, by King Artaxerxes. We'll look at that. Uh, a little bit more, uh, probably next week as well, mention those things. So last week, the, the prophets we were looking at uh, were Hosea. This is the period of time he covers fairly early on towards the end of the, the time of Israel's uh, reign, the northern kingdom. Uh, Joel as well. Now, Joel we mentioned last week, very unique because of his ministry. Uh, we'll mention this in just a moment again. Uh, but Amos as well, and then Obadiah. So that was the, the prophets we looked at last week. This week we'll be looking at Jonah, Micah, Nahum, and then Habakkuk. So again, kind of a real span of time as we're looking toward the end of the, the, the kingdoms as they were. So Looking another way, and I appreciate these are small uh, from the back, but you'll have these in the PowerPoint if you want to look at this afterwards. Um, you've got the, the southern kingdom, Judah, and the northern kingdom, which was known as Israel. Rehoboam was Solomon's son, and then Jeroboam takes the north. If we look at the bottom part of that, because that's where we're more interested in, um, we've got Hosea, we looked at last week, uh, appears in this time during the reign of Jeroboam the second, and so on. Um, Hosea was the loving prophet, if you, in a sense. Uh, he was just calling Israel to repentance and return. That word just continually comes up through the book. Um, but it's incredible. Some have said, we mentioned last week, that uh, he's kind of the Jeremiah of the north. Um, we then look at Joel. Now, Joel has a kind of a unique uh, ministry in a sense, whereas he's the first one to give us the writings 
prophetic writings that will then span the, the future of the world right up until the second coming and so on. Uh, and his focus very much is on the day of the Lord. So that's again we looked at last week. We also looked at Amos who was just a shepherd, just an ordinary person, just like you and I had a standard day job. But the Lord called him into this ministry and he speaks of this judgment to the nations, those nations that surround Israel then turns his finger and points at Israel themselves and highlights that they are just as bad as these nations that are around them and for that God will bring judgment and Obadiah uh, we looked at last week well he speaks this um, prophecy just this one chapter uh, but speaking on the judgment of Edom uh, the descendants of Esau so that's what we looked at last week this, this morning we're going to pick up and start with the book of Jonah uh, well Jonah really is prophesying around about this time here is a time and contemporaneous, really, with Hosea uh, and uh, Amos, that kind of uh, time potentially, uh, from what some of the scholars uh, suggest. Um, but early on, certainly in Israel's history, um, we see not not too far after the division of the kingdoms and so on. So. Just to mention, though, there's some books in the Bible that Satan hates. I mean, probably 66 would probably sum it up, but actually there's some specific ones. Genesis, we see so many attacks on the book of Genesis. Why? Because it really lays down the foundation for the incarnation of Christ. That God would come in the person of Jesus to this earth to be our saviour. Genesis 3.15 speaks of the seed of the woman. And this is one of the reasons Satan has a real hatred for this book. Jonah that we're looking at this morning is another book that's been very attacked by the critics. Why? Because it speaks of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself points to the book of Jonah as being this book that details in advance the fact that Jesus would be in the ground, uh, in the grave for three days, three nights, and then rise again. And we'll look at the prophetic models as we go on in a moment. Daniel, another book that's very attacked by the critics, uh, thoroughly debunked of course these things now, but Daniel speaks of the second coming of Jesus Christ. This um, rock that is, this comes down and smites this image and so on. There's so many other uh, ideas that come through the book of Daniel, speaking of the second coming of Jesus. And then finally the book of Revelation, another book that's attacked and so often allegorized and the people try and water it down, speaks of the ultimate reign of Christ. So in a sense, those books, we have a great summary of all of God's plan. And Satan particularly seems to target these, so often more so than some of the other books. <clears throat> George Williams made this comment, he said, of the book of Jonah, the book is unique in that it is more concerned with the prophet himself than with his prophecy. The condition of his soul and God's loving discipline of him instruct and humble the reader. And we'll see that as we look at this briefly. So written somewhere around about 850 or so B.C., in that kind of time frame. Um, Now, 150 years or so before this, Israel had been the number one power in the known world. Now we sometimes forget that. We often look at scripture and we often think of Israel as being oppressed and so on. Israel under Solomon were the number one power in the world. It's one of the, the reasons that the rebuilding of the, uh, the city of Jerusalem and so on is halted in the days of uh, Nehemiah and Ezra because they say, look what the kings of the past have done here. And they look back in history and the, the uh, uh, Persian kings checking their records and they realize that the influence that Jerusalem had So in just this short period of time, Israel have gone from being this world-dominating power, in a sense, in the Middle East, to now being just really under threat from this rising army of Assyria. Israel's kingdom, of course, split around about 985 BC uh, with Solomon's son, Rehoboam, and Jeroboam, and so on, splitting the north and south, as we looked at a moment ago. Now, at the time of Jonah... 
Assyria is now on the rise as the major world power. And in a hundred years from this point, Israel will be defeated by the Assyrians. Now Jonah is concerned because Assyria are this real threat to his way of life, to his nation's way of life, and everything he knows. Now the Assyrian Empire will become the largest that the world had known up until this point. The Assyrians quickly gained a reputation for being very violent and very, very cruel. There's a number of things. William MacDonald in his commentary says, They flayed their enemies alive, made heaps of their skulls, and did other dreadful deeds. That's just a a little taste of some of the things that they were into. Uh, They led captives away in human chains, literally sewn together. They would sew you through your nose to the person in front of you. makes it a bit tricky to run away. Uh, And those were the kind of things they did, or or sewing ears together and so on. Um, And so you couldn't escape. You were once in this this caravan being led away captive. The Assyrians also, interestingly, were the ones that invented crucifixion. Uh, They were very cruel, very barbaric. So if you were Jonah, what would your thoughts be of the Assyrians? Well, we look at the the empire as it existed. You can see the whole of this area really becomes the kind of area uh, of Assyria. Um, But this this particular area, certainly in Jonah's time, is the bit that they're most concerned about. And this is the area of Israel here, not yet under Assyrian control. And Nineveh, you can see highlighted there, uh, this place for for Jonah, a long, long, long way away uh, from the place that he lived. So, at the time of Jonah, the city was around about 14 miles across. And 100 foot walls surrounded the city. There were 1,500 towers, all that were about 200 foot tall, around the city. There were 15 gates, of which five have now actually been uncovered by archaeologists and so on. Uh, and many sceptics thought that Nineveh was actually just a, a mythological city. They didn't believe it was real. Because of these descriptions, these historical descriptions, it seemed so great, so wonderful. And so they said, well, it was just like Atlantis, one of these kind of mythological things that's come up. But that was until we got to the 19th century when Arabs discovered some ancient ruins. And that led on to a number of other archaeological excavations. Um, in 1820, Nineveh was actually mapped out by the British uh, archaeologist Claudius Rich. And then in 1847, uh, Austin Henry Layard explored the ruins and found the lost palace of Shennacherib. Uh, and that really did finally shut up the critics in regard to this. It proved that the Bible was right all along. Not that we're surprised at that, of course. But for the critics, that's a kind of a bit of a, an eye-opener. Um, that's just a, a, a suggestion of what it may have looked like. This, this incredible city with all of these towers going around it. Certainly it was very, very formidable. Now, with that background, we jump into the opening verse of chapter 1. Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness is come up before me. Now Jonah at this point is thinking, this is not a bad mission, I'm quite happy to go and proclaim your judgment on them, God because we don't want them coming here. But then we go on. But Jonah rose up and fled unto Tarshish. Why? Because Jonah realized that what God was calling him to do was not to go and proclaim judgment, so much as going and proclaim mercy. God was basically sending Jonah on a mercy mission to say, if you don't repent, then I will judge. But I'm giving you an opportunity to repent. Jonah did not want this assignment. These were people that he was fearful of, that were about to take over his own land. And so we read that Joseph rose up and fled unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. 
That's a crazy thing to do. You know, you may have tried that, trying to run away from God. It's not a good idea because God will find you. He's very good. You can't play hide and seek with God. God knows the end from the beginning. He knows everything. He is, after all, God. Psalm 139, we have recorded there. Where can I flee from your presence? You know, if I go up to the heavens, if I make my, my bed in the depths of Hades or hell, you know, even there, God's presence will find us. So, nevertheless, Jonah tries. He goes down to this seaport of Joppa and uh, looking across into the Mediterranean. He found a ship that was traveling off to a place called Tarshish. We'll mention that in just a moment. Uh, and he paid a fare, went down into the boat, and with them uh, they went unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. We'll, we'll see this in a moment, but Jonah just keeps going down. He goes down to Joppa. He goes into the ship. He goes down into the bottom of the ship. And we'll see it's going to get worse from there on in. D. James Kennedy made this comment. He said, you cannot say, no, Lord, and mean both words. One annuls the other. If you say to him, if you say no to him, then he's not your Lord. I quite like that. It's quite simple, isn't it? You can't say, no, Lord. Because if he's Lord, then you can't. How can you say no to God? Because God is God. God knows everything including what's best for us. Well, if we look at a kind of a summary of these things, what we see is then the opening chapter deals really with the disobedience of Jonah. Of course, this missionary call, but then his flight to this place called Tarshish, the storms at sea that then ensue, and then he's found sleeping, they end up, they cast lots, they throw him overboard. Um, and then Jonah and the great fish, the great whale, and so on. It's incredible how this, this uh, marine creature gets so much of the press and so much of the print, when really it actually plays a very small part in the book. Um, but nevertheless, it's almost like one of those little bit part, an actor comes on and just has a few lines in a play. Well, that's, that's the whale or the fish here, but for some reason gets all the attention. Chapter 2, we then see Jonah's prayer is answered. As he's down in the depths of... And he cries out to God and God answers him. It's incredible actually as we look at this and we see the, um, the heart of Jonah as he's realized that actually I've been very foolish. God is God and I should have trusted him. Chapter 3 we go on and we find that then the God through Jonah has his message declared to the city. This threat of judgment, first of all. And then this whole city repents. Now, it could have been partly due to the fact that they worshipped Dagon. Dagon was a fish god. You can go to the British Museum, you can see a relief on the wall there, and it shows that the, the god Dagon covered in scales and everything else, um, as in fish scales. And they, they kind of worshipped this sea kind of god, uh, Dagon. And so Jonah turns up, smelling a little bit fishy himself after spending some time in a whale and um, possibly bleached by these gastric juices and so on that are inside the animal. Um, and as he arrives, no doubt, word of this has got around. I mean, it's not every day that somebody is swallowed by this kind of great sea creature and then thrown up on the shore and so on. They may have heard of Jonah already. Jonah arrives and he gets the whole city's attention. But the incredible thing is they do repent. They call a fast. The king calls a fast. And they repent and they seek God and acknowledge their iniquity and so on. As a result of this, just as Jonah feared, the judgment is averted. And then that leads us on to the final chapter where really we've just got this moaning prophet. Jonah simply makes a complaint to God. Why? Why did I have to go and do this? You were going to save them anyway, weren't you? And so... We find Jonah offers this kind of prayer and then God asks him a few questions uh, and we see Jonah sulking outside the city. And really the object lesson is that Jonah learns that God 
is sovereign and God is merciful. Just as Gerald was saying a moment ago, that opening verse uh, that he read for us. Um, just a couple of comments for you. Uh, Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish. Where is Tarshish? Well, just out of curiosity, just to mention this, um, in Isaiah 66, 19, this place was afar off. Jonah was trying to get as far away from this situation as possible. You know, we often try and get as far away from things that we find unpleasant or uncomfortable. But again, God will always find us. First Kings 10 tells us it's a three-year round trip, which means it's about one and a half years by sea to get there. Now, this is in the days before we have the, the uh, ships and things we have today. Everything was done by uh, sail power. This is a local place. Herodotus, the Greek historian, says it was beyond the pillars of Hercules. What are they, I hear you ask? Well, the pillars of Hercules were the rocks that straddle the Straits of Gibraltar, so the entrance to the Mediterranean. Um, we have, obviously, Gibraltar one side, and we have North Africa the other, and they were considered the pillars of Hercules, this entrance to the Mediterranean. So it seems to be beyond that point. Now, conjecture is, he leaves Joppa, he goes through that entrance to the Med, just below Spain, by Gibraltar there, but then carries on up to Tarshish, which may well have been the British Isles. The reason for that and that suggestion, is that we know that Tarshish from Scripture, Ezekiel 27 and other Scriptures, tell us that Tarshish was a source of tin. Well, Herodotus, and of course we know even from history, that the British Isles were very famous as being a source of tin, um, particularly Cornwall area and so on. So it may well be that the place that um, Jonah was fleeing to was Tarshish. There's other interesting suggestions and links uh, through the Old Testament as well that would possibly indicate the British Isles as being the place he was fleeing to. Uh, but clearly he wasn't coming here for a holiday. Uh, he was just trying to get away from God. Interesting, isn't it? That if you want to get away from God, he selects this country. Um, make no more comment than that. Again, Psalm 139, I mentioned this a moment ago. But uh, we read there, where shall I go from thy spirit? Or where shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea. It's almost prophetic, isn't it? Looking forward to Jonah, this. Even there shall thy hand lead me and thy right hand shall hold me. I mentioned this downward spiral of Jonah as he went down to Joppa in chapter 1 verse 3. In verse 5 of chapter 1, down into the sides of the ship. In chapter 115, he goes down into the sea. And in chapter 117, he goes down in the fish. And then in chapter 2 verse 6, we're told he goes down to the bottom of the mountains, to the foundation of the earth. And chapter 2 verse 6, we're told also he goes down to corruption. What's interesting is some commentators and scholars actually believe that Jonah died. It wasn't just that he, he was in this, this creature and so on, but that he actually died and that God supernaturally raised him from the dead, specifically to be a model of Christ and Christ's resurrection. An interesting thought. There's no absolute proof from Scripture, but certainly the language wouldn't uh, exclude that possibility. But then we see as Jonah makes this prayer from this place of corruption, which again could well be an idiomatic use of, of uh, hell or Hades and so on, we find that after his prayer he comes up from corruption. Then he lifts his prayer up to the Lord. He lifts his voice up in thanksgiving. And he comes up out of the fish. And then finally he goes up to Nineveh. All in obedience to the Lord. It's interesting, isn't it, that you know when we're not in the right place with God, when we're not walking in obedience, it's a downward spiral. 
But when we're walking in obedience, it's always going up. It's not always easy. One of the uh, people that was speaking down at Creation Fest, a guy called Chet Lowe, made just a fantastic statement. He just said, serving God is not always convenient. I love that. Oh, that's just so wonderful. Serving God is not always convenient. It's not always what you expected or what you wanted. But you know, it's much better to serve God, to follow God. Because it's an upward progression, not a downward spiral. Well, again, the word of God came to Jonah the second time. This is again after he's been come up out of the fish, he's back on dry land. He's waiting, and God then says the second time. You know, one word explains that, and it's simply grace. Because we've all had that second chance. We all died, as it were, in Adam. We'd missed the opportunity of fellowship with God for eternity. And yet, because of his grace, a call goes out a second time for us. A number of occasions in scripture we can highlight this kind of getting it right second time. And the first time disobedience, the second time obedience. Of course, with the children of Israel, the law. First time broken, second time they received the law. We also have the spies going into Canaan. The first time disobedience, second time it leads to the conquest. And then we have, of course, the fact that Israel rejected their Messiah. Well, finally Israel will gladly receive him. This is exactly the point that Stephen is making in his sermon in Acts chapter 7. They they kill Stephen before he gets to the conclusion, but they know exactly where he's heading with it. Of course, Israel were to be a witness, and they failed. Instead, they became an astonishment. But ultimately, Israel will be a sign to all nations, Ezekiel 39.23 tells us. And of course then, ourselves, that we were dead in trespasses and sins. And again, as we said a moment ago, he has made us alive. We've been given that second chance. Um, this is where Jonah comes from. Uh, and Joppa, the seaport, uh, is down here. And that's where, again, he sailed from. Uh, and then eventually from there, we know he travels up to Nineveh, up here, uh, from this area, eventually getting to there. So... <coughs> That second verse again, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach unto it the preaching that I bid thee. You know, Jonah was fearful. He was fearful of what they might do to his nation. They were fe- he was fearful of what they might do to him unto it as well. Luke twelve four and 5 tells us this, so I say unto you, my friends, be not afraid of them that kill the body. And after that, I have no more that they can do. But I will forewarn you whom you shall fear. Fear him who after he is killed has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say unto you, fear him. Speaking of God, that's the one that we should be fearful of, with a, a reverent and holy fear. Proverbs twenty nine twenty five says this, The fear of man brings a snare. But whoso puts his trust in the Lord shall be safe. You know, God wasn't going to, about to abandon Jonah. Of course... Again, verse 4 of uh, chapter 3. Jonah began to enter the city a day's journey, and he cried and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. See, Jonah preaches of the coming judgment. Effectively, there were three words that would have been understood, both in the the Hebrew and the Aramaic at that time. Forty days, Nineveh, and overthrown. That's about all they would have probably understood of his preaching. But that was enough. You know, you don't need to be eloquent to go and preach the gospel. You just need to have a heart for the Lord. And God will give you opportunities wherever you are. Just three words was enough to turn a whole city around because he was inspired and led of the Holy Spirit. 
Spurgeon made this, made this comment. He said, The doctrine of judgment to come is the power by which men are to be stirred. There is another life. The Lord will come a second time. Judgment will arrive. The wrath of God will be revealed. Where this is not preached, I am bold to say the gospel is not preached. Interesting words from Spurgeon. Of course, if Jonah were to be preaching and speaking today, what would he be saying? Well, he'd be saying, people of Nineveh, God loves you. You've got a God-shaped hole in your heart. Believe in the God of Israel and you'll have peace and joy and lasting happiness. God has a wonderful plan for your life. You see, that's what we're doing today, sadly. That's the message that's going out from churches, from Christians. Very different from the message that Jonah preached that brought conviction of sin and repentance. What I miss if Jonah had been going to an emerging church? Well, this would be the message. It would be again, people of Nineveh, God loves you. You don't have a sin problem, it's a self-esteem problem. You know, if you call your God day, you go, that's fine with us as long as you're sincere and you worship the way you feel comfortable. You know, we need to work together to tackle the social problems. We've got to combine our resources. Let's not get bogged down with doctrine. We need to reinterpret our beliefs to make them inclusive. And you know, of course we reject fundamentalism of any kind. It's divisive. Are we all going to the same place after all? Well, one thing those people do have is the truth that they are all going to the same place. There are two choices, of course. There's smoking and there's non-smoking. But again, that's not the gospel. Paris Reinhead said this in his book, Finding the Reality of God. He said, if I had my way, I would declare a moratorium on public preaching of the plan of salvation in America for one or two years, and it's no different in this country. Then I would call on everyone who has the use of the airwaves and the pulpits to preach the holiness of God, the righteousness of God, and the law of God, until sinners would cry out, what must we do to be saved? Then I would take them off in a corner and whisper the gospel to them. Such drastic action is needed because we have gospel-hardened a generation of sinners by telling them how to be saved before they have any understanding of why they need to be saved. Come and speak for itself. Jesus confirms Jonah as a prophet, and yet the only thing that Jonah actually prophesies actually fails to come to pass, the destruction of Nineveh, at that particular time anyway. So what ways does Jonah speak prophetically? Well, Jonah very much is a type of Christ. Jesus himself alludes to this. But Jonah loved his own people. His own people had rejected God. Jonah gave his own life to save Israel. The reason Jonah ran away, it wasn't just a selfish, I don't want to listen to God. He did it because he did not want Assyria to be saved and spared because he wanted to save Israel. So Jonah, in that sense, becomes a type of Christ giving his own life. He was in the grave, as it were, for three days, three nights. But after he rose, the message of God's coming judgment and salvation through faith went to the Gentiles. How interesting. Jonah also, though, is a type of Israel, called to be a witness to the Gentiles, but disobeyed and rejected the Lord, cast into the sea of nations, as it were, and consumed, cried to the Lord from the depths, and then miraculously given life again, eventually to become a witness to the Gentiles. Incredible parallel we see with the nation of Israel and Jonah's own life. And then Jonah, of course, as a type of you and I. We were called by God 
Of course, we ran away from his voice. Remember back in the garden, Adam and Eve, they hid, they heard the voice of the Lord walking in the garden. How can you hear a voice walking, by the way? Well, I think we see that there's a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. It's the voice of the Lord was walking. What is the voice of God, the word of God, made flesh? They were running from their own, the only one that could save them. But we likewise ran away. We went down to the depths and finally, when we get to that pit of despair in our own lives, finally at that point we cry out to God. And he puts a new song in our mouths. We're given a second chance, a new life, and we're commissioned to witness of the coming judgment, just as Jonah was. God allows us often to go through windstorms, as Jonah did in chapter 4, to show us where our heart is. He labors and causes all those he loves to grow. Just as God did with this gourd that we read of in chapter 4. So that's the prophet Jonah. Let's have a quick look at the prophet Micah. Micah, again, in the, in the, the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah, around about the time of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Well, it's just a... There we go. So written around about 570, some hundred years or so after uh, Jonah. Uh, Micah was contemporaneous with Isaiah. He was from a small town southwest of Jerusalem called Morasheth, which is near Garth, which is a place that we're familiar with today, down in the area we often refer to as Gaza. He spoke to all Israel. So although he was from the south, he was speaking to the north as well regarding God's judgment that would result from their unrepentant sin. And he warned the northern kingdom, and then because they didn't listen and God did bring judgment, he then use their destruction as an object lesson for the southern kingdom. Say, look, they didn't repent, see what happened to them. Well, Micah incidentally is the fourth largest of the minor prophets. There's actually seven chapters uh, in Micah. He's quoted five times in the New Testament, and his name means, who is like Jehovah? He frequently uses puns or double entendres to get his point across. Now, it doesn't carry across so well in the translations. In the Hebrew, it's very much wordplay on the names, on the places, and everything else as he's trying to preach his message. Very much, you see that in chapter 1, the cities that are mentioned. Jesus, incidentally, does the same as that in Revelation chapter 3 with Laodicea. When we get to our study of Revelation, we'll have a brief look at that and see how Jesus uses the names of the places uh, in that kind of same kind of way. William MacDonald again makes this comment. He says, By the 8th century BC, the old agricultural system in Israel and Judah, with its fairly even distribution of wealth, was gradually replaced by a greedy, materialistic, and harsh society that split the people sharply into the haves and the have-nots. The rich landowners got richer and the poor farmers got poorer. The latter migrated to cities which were characterized by poverty and vice alongside the upper class's luxury and also their cruelty to the poor. Doesn't that sound a little bit like the country we live in? You know, that we find the rich getting richer, everybody ends up migrating towards the cities and so on, and then we just get this just iniquity, just overflowing everywhere. Very, very similar. As you read through Micah, you see our own reflection as a nation. Well, chapter 1, we see the judgment against Israel and Judah proclaimed. The first part of chapter 2 is the judgment against these wealthy oppressors. The promise of restoration. You know, one of the things you find as you go through these prophets is that God will speak of judgment and then speak of mercy. And it's never far away. You never go through a portion about judgment before you read about God's mercy. The judgment against the religious leaders was pronounced in chapter 3. 
But then the glory of Christ's millennial reign in chapter 4. We then get the promise of the Messiah's coming in chapter 5. In chapter 6, we find that Israel is, as it were, on trial. It's the legal case is presented. Why is God bringing judgment? And is he just in doing so? And then we get Micah's lamentation over the nation in chapter 7, the first part of the chapter. Very much like the book of Lamentations. He just pours his heart out. This was his own nation. They're about to be judged, falling away. And then finally, the future blessing for Israel. But in the midst of the judgment of the wealthy oppressors, it's there that God declares, I will surely assemble, O Jacob, all of thee. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. And I will put them together as the sheep of Bosra, as the flock in the midst of their fold. They shall make great noise by reason of the multitude of men. Now from 985 BC, when the kingdoms divided in Israel into north and south, up until 1948, which wasn't long ago, this scripture wasn't possible. Because Israel would divide into two kingdoms. But here, God says, I will surely assemble, O Jacob, all of thee, the north and the south, gathering the remnant of Israel. And notice, they're going to be gathered to this place, Bozrah, which is Jordan. This is the place where Israel, we're told in the New Testament, in the book of Revelation, they will flee to during this time of trouble that is coming upon them. Also, in declaring the coming Messiah, Micah says this, But thou, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth has been from old, from everlasting. Interesting, this scripture, because notice, the Messiah is to be ruler in Israel. I think this is incredible. This is so politically incorrect, and yet every Christmas time, this is played from the carols in the shopping malls, wherever you go, you hear these things. But the whole point of the Christmas story is that Jesus was coming to be king of Israel. The same Israel that Hamas are firing rockets at daily. Yes, that Israel. Jesus says he will come and he will be king over the nation of Israel. And this prophecy, this scripture, which we know so well from the Christmas uh, scene and so on, depicting the place of his birth, but the one who's coming who's going to rule in Israel. Of course, it hasn't happened yet. It's yet future. Another part that we see in the midst of the justifications of God's actions, God states... He has showed thee, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. God makes it very, very clear that although Israel were unjust, although he has a very good case against them and will bring judgment, that actually there was no necessity on their part. They could have avoided this. God has already shown them what is expected. And this is what God wants from you and I. This is what God wanted from them. What is it that God requires? Well, it's probably the most simple expression of obedience we find. It's simply, number one, be just in thought and word and deed. Don't just fight for your corner, for your position. Be just. Number two, be merciful in thought, word and deed. You see, we're to be like the one who created us. We've been made in his likeness. And thirdly, we're to walk humbly, but notice this, with God. A lot of people go about, oh, and they seem so humble. Oswald Chambers makes the comment, you know, what may be humble before men is not necessarily humble before God. 
You know, if I asked you this morning, you know, with the most humble person, please put up their hands. You know, humility is one of those things that we often shy away from. But Moses, we have declared of, recorded of him, declared of him, he was the most humble person at that time. That's an incredible statement to us. That's, that's almost arrogant. And we don't know whether Moses himself penned those words or whether that was Ezra added it later. But Moses was no pushover. He wasn't just trying to hide and say, you know, no, please don't, don't get embarrassed. No, Moses was aware of the position that God had called him to. You know, we need to understand that it was about walking humbly with God and what's humble in God's eyes. So again, we should be just in everything we think, everything we say, everything we do. We should be merciful. Again, everything we say, everything we do, all our actions, and then walk humbly with God. And then in the midst of this lamentation that occurs at the end of the book, Micah lifts his head and declares, Therefore, I will look unto the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. What a statement. In the midst of all this, knowing that judgment is coming on his nation, and for us, same thing. We're in the same position now. It's a matter of time. In all of that, this statement, I'm going to look to God. I'm going to wait for God. God is the God of my salvation and God will hear me. Our confidence should never be in man or man's ability. And then finally, in considering Israel's future, Micah declares, thinking of his own name, interestingly enough, that name, who is like God. He declares this, who is a God like unto thee? So we've got a real play on the words, thinking of his own name, again, playing into the text, that pardons iniquity, and that passes by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage. He retains not his anger forever, because he delights in mercy. You know, one of the recurring themes as you go through these minor prophets is the incredible mercy of God. People think that God is just out there to, you know, bring judgment, to tell people off. Well, for the wicked, for those that won't repent, that's true, that's what will happen. But for those that repent, those that are humble before him, oh, God delights in mercy. Well, the book of Nahum, just briefly, Nahum occurs kind of around about the time of the Assyrian captivity. Um, And just uh, typically, we'll we'll see as it it kind of plays out. In a sense, Nahum is Jonah part two. Because both of these individuals speak and prophesy exclusively to Nineveh and to the house of Assyria. Nahum means house of Nahum. It's where we get Capernaum from in the New Testament. It's interesting that the, the Pharisees make a little error, a little faux pas, when they were talking about Jesus and coming from the region of Galilee and saying, can a prophet come from that area? Well, Nahum did. <laughs> you should have known that. Capernaum. And probably written again during the reign of Manasseh, but before 612. So before Assyria's final destruction, but right towards the end of that time. And his book is really a denunciation of a major world empire at the height of their power. This is like you going vocal about Obama or about any other major world leader at the moment and really, really making a big thing of it. I mean, this is quite a bold thing for Nahum to be doing, but again, he's led of God to do this. As Daniel would later tell Nebuchadnezzar, it's God who reigns in the kingdoms of men and Nahum is simply making that clear that Assyria are not the power they think they are. There is a much higher power. And he foretells the destruction that Jonah sought. Jonah wanted to see the Assyrians destroyed. God 
because he's merciful, gave them this opportunity to repent. Interestingly enough, Nahum's name means comforter or consolation. Now, not much comfort or consolation for Assyria, but for Israel. Finally, the Assyrians were getting the judgment that they deserved for their iniquity and their cruelty and everything else. Well, just a very simple overview of the book. The first portion of chapter 1, really, we see the character of God, the judge, is laid out for us. And then we find the judgment on Nineveh is actually then decreed. Chapter 2, we see uh, Nineveh's judgment described. And then finally, God is just in his judgments, which takes us to the end of the book. So again, all of this book really focusing on the judgment of Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire. Let me just read this to you, though, from uh, chapter 1, verse 2. God is jealous and the Lord revenges. The Lord revenges and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries. And he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord has his way in the whirlwind and in the storm. And the clouds are uh, the dust of his feet. This is a declaration of the God that we serve. In verse 7 of chapter 1, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. And he knows them that trust him. But with an overrunning flood, he will make an utter end of the place thereof, and darkness shall pursue his enemies. Well, just as we have prophesied here by Nahum, so has happened in history. Nahum prophesied the destruction of Nineveh today. There's very little left to see. The place has been utterly destroyed and wiped out. It wasn't destroyed and wiped out by Israel. It was other nations that God used to do this, particularly Egypt to start with, and then uh, Babylon later on. You look from the air. This is Nineveh. This is just looking from from, uh, Google Earth, looking down. You can still see some of the area of the walls of the gates of Nineveh, and some of the walls of the ancient city are still visible from the air. There's one of the ancient gates you can still see. As I say, they've uncovered five of them. Um, they also, Ankara, as I said earlier, uh, Layard uh, discovered this great palace of Shenekareb. And you go to the British Museum in London and you can see all sorts of things that they've taken away and brought back, uh, which are now on display in the British Museum. Uh, the things, the reliefs that were around the wall here and all sorts of things. Um, it's one of the, the most incredible collections of artifacts uh, that you'll find when you go to the British Museum. Um, so just as God had promised, Nineveh did receive the judgment due for their iniquity. So finally, the book of Habakkuk. Great name, Habakkuk. We're not having any more, but if we do, we're having any more. Habakkuk's a good name, I think it's Habakkuk. Okay, so Habakkuk, again, towards the latter end of the the southern kingdom, uh, is uh, when he prophesies and speaks. Not for very long, but around the time of Jeremiah, Obadiah again was kind of contemporary uh, with him at this time as well, uh, which also means that a little bit uh, further on, but very close would have been Daniel and Ezekiel all around this kind of time, this very, very short time span, the end of the southern kingdom. Well, Habakkuk's name, his name means to wrestle. And what a great a summary, in a sense, of this book. You know, this book really is a commentary on the way you and I are. Our attitudes towards God sometimes. And I love it. It's such an honest book. And it's such a, you know, why God kind of book. You know, why did you allow this? Why do you do that? And sometimes it's good to have those arguments with God. Of course, God always wins. But we find that Habakkuk seems to be a prophet and a musician. 
time of writing in, just shortly before 606 BC when the Babylonians came and conquered uh, Jerusalem and so on, or took the first captivities, uh, captives away. But Habakkuk is the epitome of the hard question before God, that why God do you allow, dot, 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 fill in the blank. Well, the conclusion is simply because God is God. That's the conclusion that Habakkuk in these short three chapters reaches. Why does God allow things that we don't think he should? Well, it's simply because he is God. There's a great song by Stephen Curtis Chapman called God is God. And part of the the line of the chorus is, God is God and I am not. I can only see a part of the picture he's painting. God is God and I am man. So I'll never understand it all. For only God is God. And great summary of this little short three chapter book. Let's go through. So look, Habakkuk's complaint is in the first chapter. Um, it's kind of why do the unrighteous prosper in Israel because he's looking at the nation he's looking at what's going on he's saying God this is supposed to be your country your land and yet people are doing all sorts of things getting into all sorts of iniquity and wickedness and cruelty and slavery and all sorts of things are going on why do you allow that well God's response is well the Babylonians are coming to bring judgment because of this incidentally God makes it very clear at the end of that little section that they themselves are actually going to be judged as well because of their iniquity. They're not going to get away with it. They're also going to be judged. And then Habakkuk, uh, Habakkuk asks another question. And really this is, well, okay, God, I kind of trust you, and you're, kind of, you're just, right? That's the way you are. But are you sure this is a good idea? The Babylonians. We've heard lots about the Babylonians. God's saying, I'm going to allow this judgment to come and Babylon are going to bring it. Because of the nation, because of what's going on. And Habakkuk said, Lord, can we do this a different way? And isn't that again a little bit like you and I? God will show maybe how he's going to deal with a particular situation or something may occur. And it's like, Lord, I'd rather have a, a different lesson. Is there another option? Can I select something else off your list? I don't like learning the lesson that way. That just seems a little bit cruel, a little bit hard for me. Well, then finally in chapter 2, God's response is given there. And really, God says, this is why I'm bringing judgment. And yes, it is severe because of Israel's iniquity. And it's incredible. As you go through chapter 2, you see God make it very, very clear why judgment is coming. There's five woes that are pronounced against Judah. But Habakkuk 3 Verses 1 and 2. We read, as Habakkuk begins his prayer, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet upon Shiginoth. This is a musical instrument. O Lord, I have heard thy speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make known. In wrath, remember mercy. Habakkuk just cries out to God and says, Look, okay God, I accept that you're just in what you're doing, but please, remember your mercy. And of course, we've already seen that God delights in mercy. In verse 16 through 17, we read, When I heard, my belly trembled. This is when he hears of the judgment that God's bringing. My lips uh, quivered at the voice. Rottenness entered into my bones, and I trembled in myself, that I might rest in the day of trouble. When he comes up unto a people, he will invade them with his troops. Although the fig tree shall not blossom, Reference to Israel. Neither shall fruit be in the vines. Another reference to Israel. They should have been fruitful. They weren't. The labor of the olive tree fail, and the fields shall yield no meat. The flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stalls. 
Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. You know that song that Katie sang for us earlier, thank you. This is, uh, again, this is what Habakkuk is saying here. You know, through all the things that I don't understand, the things I see, the things that I don't see, I'm still going to thank you, God. I rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. I don't understand it all, but Lord, I'm going to trust you. The Lord God is my strength, and he will make my feet like hinds feet. He will make me to walk upon my high places. And he just hands this over, as it were, to the chief singer of my stringed instruments. This song, in a sense, is prayer, just to be used in worship. Well, of course, Habakkuk becomes a very influential book in history. Because in Habakkuk 2, verse 4, we have an incredible statement. It's led to a trilogy of epistles in the New Testament, seemingly by Paul, all of them. But the simple statement is, the just shall live by faith. Not by work, not by effort. We can't get right with God by anything we try and do. It's purely by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. It's accepting what Jesus has done. Not because we deserve it, not because we can bring anything. It's not because, okay, we're now going to try and keep the law. No, none of those things. It's purely because it pleased God. The just shall live by faith. There was this young monk by the name of Martin Luther. As he's climbing up steps in Rome on his knees, the blood coming out. Suddenly this verse grabs him. The just shall live by faith. Not by work. It's talking about the righteous. If you look actually, Habakkuk is dealing all the way through this with the righteous. And Lord, what about the righteous? What are you going to do about all these that commit iniquity? Where do the righteous stand in relation to this? When the judgment comes, what about the righteous? And God comes back and says, the righteous, the just, well, they're going to live by faith. They're going to be okay because their faith is in God. The just, who are they? Well, that's dealt with in the book of Romans. Romans 1.17 Paul quotes this verse and tells you who the just are. Those who are justified, the righteous. The shall live question, the how, is addressed in the book of Galatians. Galatians 3 verse 11, Paul quotes from this verse. And then finally, by faith, the third time this verse is quoted in the New Testament is from the book of Hebrews. And again, it leads many commentators to suggest that actually Paul then is the writer of Hebrews because we have this trilogy. Each of those three epistles use Habakkuk 2.4 as in a sense the cornerstone of their writings. The Romans of course became the cornerstone of the Reformation which has changed the world in which we live today. And it's hard to summarise how much impact on Western civilization there has been because of the Reformation, the rediscovering of God's grace. But there's another key verse that I'd like to point out. In Habakkuk 2 verse 14 it says... For the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's a lovely verse. It's a beautiful verse all of its own. But we've got to take it in the context of which it's written. Now the context of which it's written is in the midst of God's list of Israel's iniquity in chapter 2. There's five woes pronounced against Israel in chapter 2. In the midst of those things... God just takes a breather in a sense for all this judgment that's coming and the reason the judgment's coming and says, regardless of all of that, the earth shall be filled 
with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Why did God say this to Israel? Why did God even insert this at this point? Well, it's really though Israel themselves have been unfruitful to the nations. You see, even though all of that, the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. You see, it's very much within the context that God is saying again, Israel has failed in their commission to be a fruitful vine, revealing God to the nations. We read earlier in the book, Israel compared to a vine. In Ezekiel and elsewhere, Israel are compared to this vine. They were supposed to bring forth fruit. This whole idea of the vine there goes way back. God, right in the Garden of Eden, told Adam and Eve that they were to be fruitful. They were to bear fruit for him. Ultimately, they failed. Israel were then chosen to bear fruit, to reveal God to the world. They failed. Finally, though, we get to the New Testament. And there, God declares through Jesus, I am the true vine. You see, John fifteen 16, we're told that just as Jesus is the true vine, if we abide in him, we will produce fruit. And we've been told that we have been appointed that our fruit should remain. You see, God wants to let the world know, to reveal himself to the world. Adam and Eve messed up. Israel messed up. But Jesus was never going to mess up because he came and he was obedient to his father. And we've been given this privilege of representing God to the world. You know, Paul in Corinthians tells us that we're ambassadors. Do you know what an ambassador does? An ambassador represents their king to a foreign realm. That's exactly what we're called to do. To represent our king, to represent Jesus to the world in which we live. And we're to do it by the way we live our lives and by the things that we say. None of this, you know, let's just do good things and be Christians and people will see and observe. Of course people should be able to see, but it's also about preaching the gospel. Of course, by the way we live, but by the things we say. And we're to represent our king into the realm in which we live. We're to be, as it were, that fruitful vine. And we're to bear fruit for him. And God says to Israel, even though they've blown it, the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. An actual fact, as we looked at earlier, God makes it very clear. That finally, Israel, when they repent, when they are brought back to him, the Lord will use them to be a witness to this world. And they will be a beacon, as it were, that will draw the nations to the Messiah, to the King of Kings, to our Saviour, Jesus. So that takes us to the end of these prophets. Next week, read ahead, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah and Malachi. And that will bring us to the end of our study of the Old Testament. And we'll then move on from there. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these incredible truths. Lord, we do thank you that you are a merciful God. Oh Lord, we sing in our songs that your mercy endures forever. Oh Lord, we are so grateful that your mercy endures. Lord, we're thankful that your love endures. But Lord, we're sure you would love those that even have rejected you because of your nature. But Lord, we, through eternity, are secure because of your mercy. Oh, and Lord, we thank you for that mercy. Father, we thank you also that, as we've seen this morning, the just shall live by faith, not by works, not by our efforts. 
Lord, just work in our lives. Impress these lessons upon our hearts and cause us to grow in knowledge and grace, we ask. We just again thank you for these incredible depths and treasures that we find in your word. And Lord, we rejoice and expectantly look forward to that time that the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. We thank you for all of these things now in Jesus' precious name. Amen.